0: warm welcome to St. Pete, especially to any drop-ins or guests with us. Uh, We are continuing in a series that we started earlier in the summer. It's called Shadowlands, working through some of the key stories in the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament of the Bible. Last week, if you were here, you'll recall that we looked at the conflict between Saul and David. They were dueling kings, as it were. And that conflict was really the result of Saul's envy of David. Saul got filled with a crazed paranoia. And while all of Saul's actions against David are absolutely despicable, God uses that entire scenario to prepare David to receive the kingdom. As David is continually hunted by Saul, he survives, but along the way he learns to rely on God in a profound and consistent way, and that is key. Because the, David's demonstrated reliance on God, it's not just theoretical, it's demonstrated, that is the essential criterion for a king in Israel. This is about David being formed into a leader who can say, the Lord is my life and my light. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Those are the words that he wrote in Psalm 27. And based on what happens here in 1 Samuel, David meant that. He meant that. So God utilizes trials... Uh, to get David ready to be the king, but that is not all that God uses. Today we're going to discover that God also uses friendship to prepare David. There's a proverb found elsewhere in the Old Testament that says this. It says, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And I believe that that proverb was written about Jonathan and his friendship with David. Uh, In some of the most tumultuous years of David's life, Jonathan's friendship sustains And strengthens David for his calling to be the king. And guess what? God means to use friendship to do the very same thing for you and me. That's one of the big takeaways from this scripture today. You see, what was true for David is also true for us. According to the Bible, without friends, I don't flourish. According to the Bible, without friends, we will not thrive as human beings. Christian men and women from the Quaker tradition understood this very well. That's why their official name of the Quaker church is actually the Society of Friends. And when the church is its truest self, that is a label that should always be able to be applied to us. Sadly, it's not, however, because many of us do not carry a biblical vision of friendship. We don't practice it, and quite frankly, we don't really understand it. I've been there. Many of you have, too. Some of you are. This is Vancouver, after all. But God wants to change Vancouver. God wants to connect us. And I think that is why God has placed this stunning, heart-melting account of David's friendship with Jonathan in our hands this morning. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother or a sister. I want everybody in St. Pete's to experience that reality. I want this to be a community known for lavish and loyal friendships, legendary friendships. There's a third L for you. True poverty, you see, is not a lack of money. It's a lack of friends. Jesus knows this best of all. In fact, that's, that's part of the reason Jesus came. He talks, about in John 15, he talks about that in John chapter 15, and we're going to come back to that a little bit later. But for now, I want us to start in 1 Samuel 18 and also chapter 19 and 20. We've got what you might call a little case study on friendship here, true friendship, what ancient Christians called spiritual friendship. God wants to coach you and me in this arena because God wants all things good and great for us. And so this coaching session today is going to involve at least three little pep talks. Pep talk number one is about the need for friendship. Pep talk number two is an exhortation on the nature of friendship. And then it's going to finish up with a word about the nourishment of friendship. The need for friendship, the nature for friendship, and the nourishment for friendship. That's my outline for all of you with a T or a J in your Myers-Briggs profile. (laughs) The need for friendship. According to the Bible, this story, but lots of stuff elsewhere, friendship is not something of secondary importance. It is not an extended benefit. Oh no, it's a need. It is as essential to us for our well-being as food and water and MSP. Essential. So let's begin with a few verses from chapter 19. Taking a few things out of verses four through six here. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father. And he said, why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without a just cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swore, as the Lord lives, David shall not be put to death. Now, out of envious rage, Saul is out hunting David. And then Jonathan intervenes, and consequently, Saul, his father, calls back the dogs, for the time being at least. And so what we see is that out of friendship, Jonathan is literally saving David from an external threat. And that happens several times in the course of these chapters. But Jonathan also saves David from an internal threat. And this point is easily and often overlooked, but not today. If you go to chapter 20, verses 1 to 2, you read this. Then David fled from Naoth to Ramah and came before Jonathan and said, What have I done? What is my guilt? What is it my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And Jonathan said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. And then one more snippet, which comes there in verse 8 of that chapter. And David said to Jonathan, If there's guilt in me, kill me yourself. Why should, why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father to harm you, would I not tell you? Okay, now the point of this little narrative part here is that what you need to realize, David is under a lot of psychological duress at this time. His world has been turned upside down over and over again, and a toxic mix of terror and confusion and second-guessing have gripped his mind. And so as a result, he is actually tempted to buy in to all the stuff that Saul is saying about him. He's he's tempted to think, maybe I am actually guilty. Maybe I actually have a grieved and offended King Saul. Maybe I do deserve to die. That's what's being expressed in this language of duress in verse 8. And David's giving access to his friend Jonathan. He's giving Jonathan access to these inner thoughts, these warped and perverted thoughts, right? At this moment, you might say David's ready to throw in the towel. He's ready to lie down and quit. That's That's where he is emotionally, but Jonathan won't let him. Far be it from you. That's what Jonathan says. It's an intervention. Jonathan is saying, buddy, you're nuts right now. You're delusional. Far be it from you. You need to get rid of the conclusion that somehow you're actually guilty. If Jonathan hadn't done this, David might have crumpled at this moment. He might not have persevered. He might have been overwrought by all this, the garbage, the, the horrible stuff in his life. Folks, in each of our lives, we're going to have moments like this. And in those moments of confusion and despair, I've been there, many of you have too, without the intervention of a friend, we can very easily spiral into disaster. This happens all the time. That's why we need friends. Frodo would never have made it to Mount Doom. The ring of power would never have been destroyed if his friend, Samwise Gamgee, had not intervened. You know, In book three of the Lord of the Rings, just like chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, Frodo gets weary and confused. He tries to self-sabotage. He tells his best friend, go away, leave, Sam, go away. But Sam refuses to let Frodo ruin himself. He comes back. He intervenes, and then he ends up carrying Frodo up the side of Mount Doom, and the ring gets destroyed, and Roger weeps every time. (laughs) How important was friendship to David? Hugely. Jonathan saves David from external and internal threats. One scholar puts it like this, friendship brackets and contains all the evil that continually comes against David in these chapters. So friendship is a need. It's essential as food and water. That's the point God is making here. If we are to flourish, if we're even to survive, in fact, we need deep and durable friendships. Dorothy needed her friends to get home from Oz. Wilbur the pig needed Charlotte the spider to keep from becoming barbecue, and you do too. So don't treat friendship like a bonus. Treat it like a bedrock. Eugene Peterson puts it like this. Friendship is a much underestimated aspect of spirituality. It's as significant as prayer and fasting. It takes what is common in human experience and makes it holy and life-giving. Alas, our need for friendship is continually being obscured and sidelined. True friendship, on the one hand, so essential for us, on the other hand, so elusive to us. Listen to this study from a major university. In 1985, most folks reported having three close friends in whom they could confide. By 2004, that number had decreased to two. More disastrously, the number of people with no close friends rose from 10% in 1984 to 25% in 2004. That's one out of four people saying, I don't have a true friend. Those kind of stats tell us that friendship has enemies. There are forces in our cultural ecosystem that work against our involvement in the types of friendships that Jonathan and David have here, the type that God says we need to flourish. And I want to name two of those culprits today. Facebook and Freud. Start with Facebook. We're going to put Facebook in the docket first. A couple weeks ago I read an article by Professor Susan McWilliams called Facebook and Friendship. She teaches down in California. very penetrating article. McWilliams is not anti-Facebook and neither am I. After all, there are a lot of birthdays to remember, a lot of milestones to celebrate, a lot of people we need to anonymously stalk. Facebook helps with that. (laughs) Yet, Yet to quote McWilliams, Whatever else you make of Facebook friendship, it underscores the significant discrepancy between the scale of contemporary life and the scale of true friendship. See, the scale of contemporary life where we find find ourselves is so vast, we can hardly fathom it. And in this atmosphere, you know this, we are constantly told to minimize the time we spend on things. We're told that we need to be more efficient so that we can extend ourselves further and further. And so a service like Facebook is inevitable in this kind of context. Right? It allows us to uh, encourage the extension of our reach across great and seemingly limitless distances. By contrast, the scale of true friendship is necessarily limited. Friendship is a bounded relationship. It thrives on intimacy and depth rather than extension and breadth. That's Mac Williams. Now, what does that mean? Facebook friendship is an expression of a culture that is inhospitable to the type of friendships God says we need to thrive and survive as much as food and water and MSP. And so the great tragedy of our era is that while we can connect with more people than ever before, by the same token, we are forced to say goodbye to more people than ever before. So many people could be our friends, yet so few actually are our friends. And Facebook, or what Facebook represents, I should say, is partially to blame. So we need to be more thoughtful and disciplined in our interaction with technology so that it does not deprive us of the friendships that we really need. You see, what we need isn't more Facebook gorging time, what we need is more quality time with other people. So true in Vancouver. Second formidable enemy to the biblical vision of friendship, he's called Freud. And boy, do I have an opinion on this. And you think, oh, Freud, his theories have all been debunked, but his, his influence is pervasive. You see, the, the Freudian conviction that everything really comes down to sex, very widespread, very much at large. Freud has outposts in our minds. He's colonized our imaginations. That's how one person puts it. He's colonized the way that we approach all of our relationships. That's why we think that we can't really live without sex. But nobody thinks that about friendship. And God says we should. Now, without disparaging the goodness and the wonder of sex in the slightest, I want to say that we live in a society that is hypersexualized right now. And if we weren't so accustomed to it, maybe we would see how bizarre it is. To quote C.S. Lewis, "Is is there not something queer about the state of the sex instinct in our society right now?" We are in the age of Romeo and Juliet. That's why the magazines at the checkout line don't talk about people who become friends. They talk about who's sleeping together, right? Freud is in our DNA. And that is why, for example, when we see and meet people around town, we're much more likely to assess them in terms of sexual meat than in terms of a potential friend. That's our instinct, and Tinder exploits that. That is why a pair of close friends, female friends, right here in this church get asked from time to time if they're lesbian partners. The children of Freud, listen to this, the children of Freud struggle to imagine forms of intimacy that are non-erotic. Nowhere is that more evident than in contemporary interpretations of David and Jonathan. Chapter 19 says this, Jonathan loves David as his own soul. In chapter 20, Jonathan and David kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Were David and Jonathan homosexual lovers? A lot of contemporary interpretations have argued as much. That's why Michelangelo's David statue, very beautiful, it's in Florence, has become an emblem for the gay community. You're probably not surprised by this, however, you children of Freud. Um, In truth, the text suggests no such thing. John F. Kennedy once said, one of my favorite quotes, too often we enjoy the comfort of our opinions without the discomfort of thought, or exegesis for that matter. Contemporary sexualized interpretations of David and Jonathan tell us a lot more about the reader than the text which is being read. If you want to interpret David and Jonathan's love as sexual and erotic, you've got to be willing to extend that to all sorts of other places based on what the text says. In, in 1 Samuel 18 through 20, David is said to have been loved by Jonathan and Saul and Michael, Saul's daughter, and all the people of Israel. And it's the, the word love, it's the same terminology in Hebrew. So if you want to sexualize that, you've got to resolve that David was a regular gigolo who moved from one orgy to the next. And that is not what the text is saying. Here's how the plane lands. In our, in our cultural ecosystem, the promise, the power, the beauty of friendship gets crowded out by sex. The glory of friendship gets steamrolled by an infatuation with sex and sexual relationships that can be quite imperialistic. It tolerates no rivals. Did you know that in the 19th century, this is mind blowing, when newlyweds went on their honeymoons, they often took their closest friends along and even their family if they enjoyed them, right? Because they wanted all the people they loved, their friends and their spouse, all to be together for that time away. The fact that that is so unthinkable to us now portrays the fact that we are in a weak friendship culture. The children of Freud find platonic relationships as boring as saltine crackers. And so friendship becomes treated as an optional add-on, something that's sentimental. But according to the Bible, it's not sentimental. According to God, it's serious. It's crucial. It's a crucial need for us. And the church is called to be a community that embodies this reality. Low application. What might that look like? So much could be said here, I've got to limit myself. Embody the reality of deep friendships. Well, for starters, it means that the fabric of friendship in the church should be so thick and so rich that actually the way we think about marriage, for example, gets reconfigured a little bit. right? Marriage is no longer the place where we finally get the intimacy and the connection that we all hunger after. Oh no, we all already experience that because that's part of real friendship. Where friendships are what God intends them to be, marriage becomes more of a transition. Right? You transition from one form of real and deep intimacy and connection to another form, and that's a beautiful thing. But what it means is that nobody drives on empty. Nobody drives on empty. We need friendship. If you're not attuned to this, you're going to be in trouble. Just like David would have been in trouble, he would have been ruined if he hadn't had his friend Jonathan there with him. Fools perish for lack of friends. That's a major theme of the book of Proverbs. It's laid out right here in the story of David and Jonathan. Fools perish for lack of friends. I want to move on now and consider a little bit about the nature of friendship, its character, the nuts and bolts of friendship. And I'll draw, look at David and Jonathan's companionship, and I want to draw briefly tease out four lessons, uh, four insights on spiritual friendships. There are actually many more, but today it's just going to be four, okay? So first, real friendship is intimate. Chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took David that day and wouldn't let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And then you get something similar at the end of chapter 20. Uh, David and Jonathan kissed one another and wept, and David was weeping the most. This is not buddies hanging out. This is not um, shopping together on a bad day. This is not texting someone when you see something cool on YouTube. This is so much more. With regard to David and Jonathan, you you can say that the Bible has a very robust view of same-sex relationships. They're called friendships. They're potent. They're emotionally, psychologically vulnerable and affectionate. The text in this language, this is, the, this is language that we tend to associate with marriage, very intimate. Their souls were knit. This is language that's used elsewhere in the Bible about the uh, relationship that you have with people in your family. Uh, in other words, friendship is not just a social thing. It's about presence in good times and bad, constancy, love at all times. That's part of the deepest intimacy that we experienced. In fact, sometimes for some of us, this actually may surpass what we know in our families. That's the case with David. Go read Psalm 27, verse 10. He had a lot more connection with Jonathan, a lot more love with Jonathan than he did with his family. If we don't have some friendships marked by this type of intimacy and affection and vulnerability, you're missing out. And according to the Bible, you haven't yet really experienced friendship. We should all have one of these. We should have a few of them, you know, and we should have that whether we're married or not. Everybody in God's family should taste the reality of a single soul dwelling in two bodies. Those are Aristotle's words on friendship. God said it first. But don't expect to have too many. There's a depth here, of course, that can't be infinitely multiplied and extended. Second thing, the text also suggests that that real deep spiritual friendship is forged. Glance to chapter 18, verse 3. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And that covenant that they make together is reaffirmed several times in the subsequent chapters. For example, in chapter 20, verse 17, And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. This is all about covenant. Uh, this is telling us that, that true friendships are in part forged. They involve intentionality. You have to work at it. They're not just discovered and effortless, effortlessly enjoyed. Friendship is a practice. David and Jonathan's friendship probably began with a a discovery of mutual interest and shared passions. They were both warriors. They both had a proclivity for reckless adventure. But it was the covenant, that vow, that commitment they made to each other, that turned that friendship from sandstone into granite. Now, this may seem a little bit bizarre to us initially for at least a couple reasons. Number one, we tend to associate covenants and commitments like this chiefly with marriage. This isn't language that normally flows into the domain of friendship, but in the Bible it does. Secondly, when it comes to authenticity and authenticity in our relationships with each other, most of us carry an unspoken but mistaken assumption. It's the assumption that authenticity is defined by spontaneity. For a relationship to be authentic, to be truly meaningful and real, it's got to evolve exclusively in the context of free-flowing, spontaneous desire, nothing controlled, nothing directed. Very much a sensibility of our age. Most of us think that way, but we're wrong, at least according to the Bible. While the spontaneous discovery of mutual interest and shared passions may be the foundation or the starting point for a real friendship, that's just what it is. It's the starting point. It's just the foundation, and, and, I, and it takes a lot more than a foundation to have a home. You've got to do some building. And so the friendships that we need to thrive and survive, they also, they also have to be forged They require deliberate participation and presence. We meet every Tuesday. We give each other permission to ask these types of questions. We don't just expect all that to happen spontaneously. And by the way, if you're not doing that in calm waters, you'll never be able to do it when there's a storm. I make affirmations of my commitment to my friends. Hey, I want you to know that I am with you, that I am for you, that you can lean on me. I'm going to say that from time to time. I'm going to write that from time to time. I'm going to spell it out because we all go through moments and experiences where we are tempted to forget that or to doubt it. And then we get isolated and friendship withers. This is the nuts and bolts of friendship when we're talking about friendship as a covenant, as something that is forged. And I want to say I think this is particularly important in Vancouver. This came to me this morning as I was reflecting. A lot of us, And I know this as a pastor. A lot of us have gotten in the habit of sitting around and waiting for someone to spontaneously call us to do something, someone else to spontaneously initiate. So you need to stop doing that. You need to start to learn to be a little bit more proactive. When you discover the prospect of a true friendship, cultivate it. Tend it like a garden. See what grows. There's real wisdom here. And this wisdom has been the, the basis, since I began to practice it, of the friendships that are the most cherished and vital in my own life and if you need some more nudging on this just look at David and Jonathan's friendship everybody wants to have a friend like that everybody nobody doesn't want that that's a beautiful story so maybe you feel like something's lacking in your friendships maybe this is why think about that thirdly get ready this one's interesting spiritual friendship involves wounds and wounding. That's not very nice, Roger. Well, it may not be nice, but it's necessary. Okay. Let's go to chapter twenty. And David said, Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you've brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there's guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If if I knew that it was determined by my father to harm you, would I not tell you? let going back about that conversation we looked at earlier, and we said that when David is speaking here, this is what the commentators talk about, he's in a place of psychological duress. He's worn down. He's confused. He's even delusional. And some part of him is beginning to think that he actually may be guilty. White has become black. Black has become white. Happened several times in 1 Samuel. And in that moment, Jonathan intervenes, verse 9. David, you are deranged. You are not self-aware right now. You're losing sight of who you are. What we're, what we're seeing here is one friend snapping another back into reality. The phrase, far be it from you, in Hebrew, that's a bit of a rebuke phrase. It's a bucket of cold water in the face. Now, what's going on here? The book of Proverbs sums it up like this. One of my favorite Proverbs, Richard knows this wherever he is. The wound of a friend can be trusted. How about that? A wound of a friend can be trusted. Here's how the cards fall. A real friend is someone that is willing to wound you sometimes. They're not going to stab you in the back to take you out. That's what an enemy does. But a true friend, when it's necessary, will punch you in the stomach to bring you back to your senses. That's counterintuitive. Because we tend to think of friends as people who are there to affirm us, uh, to, to agree with us, to reinforce our perspectives, not really challenge and disagree the types of people that see but ignore our character flaws even people who coax our egos, we surround ourselves by people like that. Well, according to the Bible, that kind of conduct is the conduct of someone who may not actually be a true friend. They may not actually be working for your true flourishing, which is why another proverb says the kisses of an enemy are profuse. Guess what? Most of us, Myself included, we're more than glad to indulge those types of friendship scenarios. That's why we tend to keep at arm's length people who are more than likely to disagree with us or challenge us. And that's a dangerous thing to do because it doesn't comport with the nature of real friendship, according to the Bible. You see, it kind of kind of comes down to this. The our, the essence of our growth as human beings is our capacity to love. And according to Jesus, love is about moving beyond our selfishness to be able to really care for others But guess what? I don't need to be taught to care for myself. But you better believe I need to be formed to love others. That's how one old pastor puts it. True friendship understands that. It shares that insight and that conviction. And a true friend relates to me out of that accordingly. A true friend will at times save me from myself by wounding me. Now, no doubt, all the blokes in the room have seen the movie called Emma. And perhaps some of the ladies have seen it too. I don't know. With Gwyneth Paltrow and Jeremy Northam, there's a scene from that movie that epitomizes this point. Uh, Emma has spoken in a rude and insulting manner to an elderly lady in their English village. Uh, And she's a kind lady, even if she's kind of quirky. And Mr. Knightley witnesses this whole episode, and he's left aghast. And so after they leave the picnic, he approaches Emma, who's his friend, and this is what he says. Emma, how could you be so unfeeling towards Mrs. Bates? (laughs) Try that again. It's just like a serious line. Emma. (laughs) Emma, how could you be so unfeeling towards Mrs. Bates? How could you be so insolent to a woman of her age and situation? I didn't think it was possible. Of course, Emma does self-justification. She says, well, Miss Bates didn't really understand me, so it didn't really hurt her feelings. But Mr. Knightley says, "Uh uh-uh. Were Mrs. Bates prosperous or a woman of equal situation, I would not quarrel with you about any liberties in your manner. They they wrote things so well at that time, didn't they? But she is poor, and should she live longer, she will be poorer still. Her situation being in every way below you should secure your compassion. Badly done, Emma. Badly done. Tough words. Wounding words, but words spoken to Emma in the context of that story by the truest friend she has. Those moments sting. But they reveal true friends. So do you have some? And are you one? I realize it's a little bit frightening. After all, when uh, when I find the courage to wound a friend in love, I know that I am giving them permission to do the same thing to me. Which is why sometimes you're probably like me at times when I say to myself, I love too much to confront. That's called self-deception. Because in actuality, if if you tell yourself you love someone too much to tell them the truth, you're really saying I love myself too much to go through that. We need to come to terms with this. Fourth and final thing I want to highlight on the nature of friendships from chapter 18, verse 4. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that he was in, and he gave that robe to David along with his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. This is dumbfounding, because Jonathan is the heir apparent of Israel, the firstborn king, son of King Saul. And what's going on here is not a Vancouver clothes swap. Uh, David is not ragged. He is not cold. This is a symbolic gesture. The tunic, the sword, these are all symbols of royal authority. So Jonathan, with this act, is saying that David should take precedence over him. He's doing it gladly. He recognizes who David is called to be, and he is sacrificing to get on board with David's God-given destiny. And that same pattern continues on in chapter 20. Jonathan prioritizes David over his family, over his father. You didn't do that in the ancient Near East. But Jonathan does. And guess what? It comes at a high price, because later on, his dad actually tries to kill him. The memo here is pretty straightforward. Real friendship involves sacrifice. Sacrifice, in fact, is a core ingredient. It's about holding your relational commitments, even when they cost you. Giving up things in order to help your friend live into God's call over his or her life. And the willingness to make those sacrifices, the act of doing it when it's necessary, That is what separates true friendship from the type of relationships that most of us are going to experience for most of the time and most of our lives on this planet. You see, more than 99% of our relationships are utilitarian in nature. And utilitarian relationships, they continue as long as they're profitable, as long as they're beneficial, socially, professionally, financially, however else you want to put it. So I hate to break it to you, but we're always using people and being used by people. That's most of our relationships. Those relationships are normative and even unavoidable in this world, but they are utterly incapable of offering the intimacy, the affection, and the trust that we see here between David and Jonathan. At the end of the day, that's what our hearts all hunger after. Maybe you're starving for that. If you are, that's a good thing. God created us with an appetite for this kind of friendship. But if you've been starving for that for a long time, maybe it's because there's no sacrifice in your relationships. You're not all in. You never have been. You don't really, you're not really willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of a friend. You need to stop hanging on to people tightly as long as they benefit you, as long as they're good for you. You need to be ready to sacrifice. And when you do that, you will be someone who doesn't just read about this friendship between Jonathan and David. You will read about it and relate to it. It will not be a fantasy. It will be a phenomenon in your life. Four things. As we wrap up, I want to briefly speak about the nourishment of friendship. I think it goes without saying that the vision of friendship on the table right now that we get from this story and from the book of Proverbs is somewhat idealistic. I can contemplate it with all. I desire it. But who can do that? Long for this type of friendship, but overwhelmed by what it takes. On the one hand, I know I don't have all the friends that my heart needs. But on the other hand, I know my limitations. Well, The, the Bible says that God knows both of those things, and he knows them better than we do. Which is why, in the end, what God gives us isn't something just to shift our perspective on friendship. It's, not, it's more than that. The poet Gerard Manley Hopkins famously wrote, Christ plays in 10,000 places. And guess what? He's playing right here in this story in the persona of Jonathan. In fact, according to the New Testament, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the proverb that I cited at the beginning of this sermon. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother and a sister. That's what Jesus himself says in John chapter 15. In those precious moments, he looks at all of his disciples. He's looking at us and saying the same thing. He says, I don't call you servants. For a servant doesn't know what his master's doing. But now I call you friends. That's what's known as a revelation. You want to know who I am? You want to know why I'm here? I'll tell you I'm here to be your friend. That's what Jesus is saying. Let me put it this way. If Jonathan is portrayed as the truest friend, and Jesus Christ is the ultimate Jonathan. Because of Jonathan, King David was protected from evil. He was saved from internal and external threats, and he was released to become who he was meant to be. And Jesus Christ is doing the exact same thing for us. He bound himself to us just like Jonathan and David, bound himself to us in every conceivable way, made a covenant, totally committed to our well-being and he has kept that covenant at great cost. It cost him a lot more than just taking off his robes. That's what the cross of Christ is all about. Jesus the friend who sticks closer than a brother. Jesus the friend who laid down his life for his brothers and sisters. There is no greater love than that. Anybody else ever done that for you? And so the best thing that we can do to experience the reality of deep friendship with each other and this community and beyond is to receive the friendship of Jesus Christ. His friendship to us nourishes our capacity to be good friends to each other. When we experience his sacrifice for our flourishing, we become more sacrificial. When we experience his vulnerability, his strength and weakness, we become more transparent with each other. We make room in our hearts for each other. And when we experience his utter loyalty, we get over ourselves. We stop being so utilitarian in the way that we relate to people we learn the ways of sacrificial love. So let Jesus be your friend, not just an acquaintance. Let him be your friend. That's where we get the power to become people who can practice the types of friendships that our hearts desperately need. That's how God nourishes us into a community of friends, which is just another name for the church.